In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to continue the series we started two weeks ago of comparative religions. Um, the last two weeks, we focused just kind of very, very briefly overview of orthodoxy, just so we can kind of have a frame of reference um, to what is it that we're going to discuss um, in the coming weeks. Um, if you're interested, we went in a lot more detail in a lot of the things that we had discussed in the last two weeks and other series that we've talked about. Um, so that's why we didn't go into very much detail, but just giving kind of an overview of Christianity. Um, God willing, today um, we're going to start speaking about um, Judaism. And Judaism is one of the, the, the most interesting religions to study because um, Christianity is uh, like, a, like a, an outgrowth of Judaism. Christianity was or is kind of the intended fulfillment of Judaism. So from the Jewish person's perspective, everything that, the, that God commanded in the Old Testament okay, is shared with the Christian understanding of the Old Testament for the most part. Okay? But at some point in time, the event of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ caused a change to happen, a fulfillment to happen that God had intended from the very beginning as when it comes to Judaism and the, 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 the people of God and their belief and their worship to happen. So the, the Christians are those who identified that, that God had intended the Christian faith all along and that Christianity is the, the natural extension of Judaism, right? for the people of God, but the people who remain Jews, they considered that Christianity is a heresy, consider that Christianity is, is blasphemy against God. Uh, like the perfect example of this is Saul of Tarsus, who became St. Paul, and that how did he treat Christians initially is he persecuted them. He sought to, to kill them because he considered them to be blasphemous. Um, and for that blasphemy, they deserve death. We, of course, as Christians, we see it in a different way. We see that Christianity was, again, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, the fulfillment of everything that God had done. So we're going to speak a little bit about Judaism today. Judaism is one of the oldest monotheistic religions and was founded over 3,500 years ago in the Middle East. Jews believe that God appointed them to be his chosen people in order to set an example of holiness and ethical behavior to the world. So in the Old Testament, the people of God, they were called to be his people and to remain separate and isolated from the rest of the people. God told the Jews in the Old Testament, do not interact with the Gentiles, right? Gentiles are anyone who's not Jewish. So don't interact with anyone who is not Jewish. Do not intermarry with anyone who is not Jewish. Do not eat with anyone who is not Jewish. Do not, you know, go and visit them, intermingle with them, deal with them in any way because he wanted the Jewish people to remain unspotted from the, the rest of the world. Anyone else at the time was going to be a negative influence on them because the rest of the world were pagan. They worshipped idols. They had all kinds of practices that were contrary to God's commandment. And so God knew that if he allowed the Jews to intermingle with the Gentiles, that they would fall into sin. Okay? So the, 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 the Jews were set apart okay, as the people of God, and they had a certain law that they had to follow. Okay? Whether it be the, the physical laws whether it be um, certain feasts and fasts that they had to, to hold, the offering of sacrifices, the Ten Commandments. They had all kinds of laws that God had given them for them to follow and practice. The most important event in Judaism is the Exodus. Okay, Why is that? Because it is in the Exodus 
right? The Exodus is what? It is when the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt, okay, under Pharaoh. The Exodus is when God let them out of Egypt and they became a nation in order for them to inherit the promised land, which was the land of Canaan that God had promised that they would inherit. So essentially, the Exodus was the beginning of the formation of the nation of Israel. Okay, and that's why it's such an important event. Prior to the Exodus, at the time um, of Joseph, okay, at the time uh, when uh, when when the, the the small clan of Jacob and his sons entered into Egypt, that's about seventy people. They were a very small, insignificant number. But in Egypt, as they remained there for about four hundred years, they grew and grew and grew to millions. Okay, so Egypt was kind of like for the Jews, like an incubator, right? Where they where they grew under the care of Egypt, under the care of the the the, the Pharaoh. Um, of course, they were mistreated, but they were given an opportunity to grow to be very large numbers because of all of the like the 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 the, the, fer the fertility and the, the the abundance of the land in Egypt. And then it became time when they were a mighty nation for them to come out of Egypt and to inherit a land that then would become the nation of Israel. So the Exodus was really the time when these people became just a large number of, of, of people who are the ancestors of Abraham to being a nation themselves, to having some kind of code of laws, to having um, a physical boundaries of their nation, to have a government, right? All these things happen um, in the Exodus. God promised Abraham that a great nation would arise from his seed and that this nation would have a homeland, which is the land of Canaan, that's where modern-day Israel is now, and that the entire world would be blessed by this nation. Okay, this was at the time of Abraham, this was the promise, right? This is before even he had his sons Isaac, before Jacob, before the 12 patriarchs that came after Jacob, before everything that I mentioned about the slavery in Egypt, just when it was Abraham by himself. Okay, God came to him and he gave him this promise and he said that, you know, your your descendants will be like the stars in the sky, like the sand and the seashore, and they would be a mighty nation and that the whole world would be blessed through him. Okay, now at the time, um, the Jews understood all of these blessings that God was speaking about in the context of a physical nation, right? It was a physical nation. Because the, the people understood everything only from a physical sense, right? If we are a mighty nation, if we have a strong government, if we have a strong army, all of the nations around us are subdued to us. We are the strongest nation in the world. And for them, that was the greatest blessing that God could bestow upon them is they had that strong, mighty nation. But what God was really saying when he said the whole world would be blessed through Abraham, it was not just that there's going to be a nation. It was that the Messiah is to come from Abraham. The Messiah is to come from this nation, which is why the Lord Jesus Christ was born as a Jewish man. Okay, So, of course, at the time they didn't understand this, but, but this is what was kind of foreshadowing. And anyone who reads the Old Testament with the New Testament in mind can understand the, the prophecies and their spiritual realization and meaning in the New Testament. That's why we say the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament, right? And the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Meaning when you, when you read the Old Testament with an understanding of the New Testament, you understand it for real. Like you understand really what God, why God was doing everything that he was doing. Like if you look at the example of Abraham and Isaac, which we, we mentioned in the sermon. If you don't understand the New Testament, when you look at the idea that God would ask Abraham 
to sacrifice his son Isaac. It has no sense. It doesn't even mean meaning. Like God, God, like gave Abraham a son in his old age, the son of promise, the son that he had been waiting for for a long time, the son that God told him, "I will bring to you." Okay, who is the one I'm promising to you, and is through him that your descendants will will increase. Why then would God ask Abraham to kill this son that he gives? It makes no sense. But if you look at it with the eyes of the New Testament, we see that this is a symbol. This is a symbol of the crucifixion of Christ, right? Like God is, 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 is like offering his son as a sacrifice on the cross for us, for our salvation. So it became like a, a prophecy that then we can see its fulfillment in the New Testament. But if you look at it just with the eyes of, the, of the, like the Jews, just with the Old Testament knowledge alone, without knowledge of anything else, it really doesn't have any meaning, right? You can't understand it, okay? So that's why we say the Old Testament is revealed, right? The Old Testament is understood, right? It, only through the, through the lens of the, of the New Testament. The book of Exodus opens with the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, crying out for deliverance from their enslavement by the Egyptians. The key figure in God's plan is Moses. During his time in the desert, Moses had to an, an encounter with God himself, who spoke through a burning bush that was not consumed. Okay, so this encounter, Moses at this point, he is a shepherd. He used to be in Egypt, and he was, um, he, he was cast out. He, he fled um, because he was afraid that he would be killed for killing an Egyptian man. So he was living as uh, a shepherd in the desert, and he had no intention of going to Egypt again. At one point, he believed God was going to use him to uh, free all of the Hebrews who were living in Egypt as slaves. But at this point in his life, he had fled from Egypt. He wasn't planning to go back again, and he was content to live the, le the rest of his life as a shepherd, never to return. And one day, he had this encounter with the burning bush. And it is through this bush that burned but was not consumed that he heard the voice of God speaking to him, essentially telling him that I have chosen you, Moses, to go back to Egypt and to free the, the, the people. God commanded Moses to lead the Israelites from their slavery. Moses returned to Egypt and after a series of ten miraculous plagues upon the Egyptians was able to gain the release of the Israelites. The final plague was death to the firstborn of every house of Egypt. Israelites that ate a sacred meal of roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread, which is the Passover meal, and who smeared lamb's blood on their doorposts were passed over by the angel of death. So this tenth plague that was sent on the land of Egypt, God said, for you Israelites, if you want to be freed from this plague, if you want this plague to, to not harm you, the plague that is going to come and kill the firstborn son of every household, then you should take blood, of a, of a lamb that's been sacrificed and put it on your doorpost outside of the house. And then when this angel of death comes, it will see that you have the blood on the doorpost of your house and it will not enter your house and you will be safe from this angel of death and you will not be harmed by this plague. Again, if you're looking at this from an Old Testament perspective, without any understanding of the New Testament at all, it seems kind of arbitrary. Like, why, wh what does this even mean? And why are you asking us to do this? Okay, couldn't God know who it was that was a, a Hebrew family and just not allow them to suffer? Why is it that he is asking them to do this? Okay, But if you look at it from the New Testament perspective and understanding, we understand. Because the Lord Jesus Christ 
He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and it is through the shedding of his blood on the cross that we are saved. So the idea of, of slaughtering a lamb and putting its blood on the doorpost is a symbol for the coming of the Messiah, who, is, who through his, the shedding of his blood, we are saved from, the de from death. Okay? So again, looking at it retrospectively, with, you know, now with our understanding of the New Testament, it makes sense. This is why Christian knowledge and Christian understanding is, is essential for understanding the Old Testament. When the Israelites fled Egypt, they were pursued by Pharaoh. God parted the waters of the Red Sea for the Israelites to cross through on dry land. This event, along with the Passover, became a main part of Jewish history, an act in which God intervened to deliver his chosen people. And this became like the reputation of the Jews. All the nations... Um, uh, all the surrounding area. They all recognize the Jewish people and they all recognize what is it that God did for them and they were frightened of them when they would see them because like this is the nation whose God allowed them to pass through the Red Sea, right? It was something that was, that was known. After crossing the Red Sea, God communicated the law to the Israelites through Moses. This is the receiving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments are the basics to Jewish life. These commandments stress obedience and loyalty to God and decent behavior toward members of the community. The first five books of the Holy Bible, called the Torah, the Pentateuch, became the single most important part of the Bible for, the Ju for Judaism. So all of the Old Testament, the Jews believe. But the first five books, specifically the books that were written by Moses, these are the books that contain the law, that uh, which the Jews call the Torah, and this is like the most important of all of the writings because it has the basics, uh, fundamentals of all of the laws of Judaism that God gave um, to the people through Moses. It is to this law that Jews have turned for centuries looking for inspiration and guidance. This material became the basis for the Talmud, which in turn became central for Judaism. It is at this point that Judaism is defined as a religion of the law and Jews as a people primarily concerned with obedience to the laws of God. The Talmud is additional writings that, that kind of complement the Torah. The Mishnah, or oral Torah, is the tradition explaining what the scriptures mean and how to interpret them and apply the laws. Orthodox Jews believe God taught the oral Torah to Moses and he taught it to others down to the present day. So the Torah is like additional information. It's kind of like the equivalent of what we would call holy tradition for us. You know, the holy tradition is uh, things that were taught by Christ to the apostles that were passed down um, that were not necessarily recorded in the Bible, right? But we, we know that, the, that, that these teachings were believed and practiced in the early church and we, we believe them today. The oral Torah is also like a tradition that, that they believe that God taught Moses and that was passed down orally um, and then later on was written down. This tradition was maintained in oral form only until about the second century AD when the oral law was compiled and written down. Over the next few centuries, additional commentaries elaborating on the Mishnah were written down in Jerusalem and Babylon. These additional commentaries are known as the Gemara. The Gemara and the Mishnah together are known as the Talmud. Okay, so the Gemara and the Mishnah are, are both like commentaries and additional teachings that were originally given orally to Moses that were later on written down. Together, the Mishnah and the Gemara are called the Talmud. Okay, so wh what is the Torah? 
the first five books of the Old Testament, and they're also called what? Pentateuch. Okay, and who wrote them? Moses. Okay, and what is the oral Torah? Like the traditions that was written, and it's called what? Hmm? The Talmud, and specifically it's made up of the Gemara and the Mishnah. Okay? There are two... Um, there are two different uh, versions of the Talmud. There is um, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylon, the Babylonian Talmud. Okay, the Babylonian one is more comprehensive, and it is the one most people mean when they refer to the Talmud. Modern Judaism is a complex phenomenon that incorporates both a nation and a religion and often combines strict adherence to ritual laws with a more liberal attitude towards religious belief. Okay. Politics um, and the Jewish faith are very much intertwined because a big part of what the Jews believed has to do with the identity of the nation of Israel. The identity of the nation of Israel is like inseparable from the concept of being the people of God. You know, for instance, in Christianity, we believe that the church is made up of all of the believers in the world, right? There isn't a country, which is the country, the Christian country, doesn't, that doesn't exist. Even if there are some countries that are predominantly Christian, Christianity is, the body of Christ is, the, the total of all of the Christian believers in the church and the whole world, regardless of where they are, and regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of who is their ancestor, right? Whereas... Predominantly the Jews, they believe that the Jewish nation is the nation of Israel. And so when you say that there's a nation there, all of the politics of that nation start to become important. Um, and also that the Jews are an ethnic group because they trace themselves back to Abraham. So the children of Abraham are considered the Jewish people. Okay? And they are both Jewish by ethnicity and Jewish by religion. Okay? Today, Judaism exists in three main forms, orthodox, conservative, and reform. So you can consider these like denominations of Judaism, if you want to call them that. Just like in the Christian religion, there are many different denominations. Some of them are more strict and adhere to the word of God strictly. I'm talking about Christianity now. And some of them are more loose and they more liberal and they have a, a kind of uh, a more liberal interpretation of certain things. Okay, the same is true with Judaism. So not all Jews believe exactly the same or practice exactly the same. You might see like sometimes on, on like like videos of of people in Jerusalem who are at the Wailing Wall. Okay, who are like wearing certain attire, who you know dressed a certain way, and they're very very like strict in the way that they live, the w the way that they treat the Sabbath, for instance. Those would be like the Orthodox Jews. Okay. People who are more like the Reformed Jews, who are the most liberal of the group, they might not do that. They might not hold to the Sabbath strictly the way that the Orthodox Jews do. Orthodox Jews maintain strict adherence to the letter of the law. The Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, and the Talmud rules every aspect of the Orthodox Jews' life. As an example, the law of Moses forbids the eating of pork or shellfish. So everything that God commanded literally in the Old Testament, um, they continue to practice it. So you can think of like the Orthodox Jews are like an extension of the Jewish people as we read about them in the Old Testament. 
right? Very like holding strictly in every way to all of the laws of the Old Testament. It also forbids the cooking of a young goat and its mother's milk. Orthodox Jews, therefore, will not eat meat and dairy products together, going so far as to use separate dishes for meat and dairy foods. Conservative Jews, which is like the middle group, have a more lenient interpretation of the Torah, but believe the law is still of vital importance. Reform or liberal Jews attempt to ab apply broadly Judaic notions to contemporary culture in a humanistic manner. They teach that the principles of Judaism are more important than the practices. Okay, In Christianity, the same thing happens. Like You might have people who are, they consider themselves Christian, and they try to apply, in a general sense, the moral law of Christianity, loving your neighbor, um, doing good, being kind, being generous, all that. But then when it comes to some things, like, for instance, communion, okay, that we believe that it is the body and blood of Christ, that Christ himself said that this is his body and blood. When it comes to something like this, they might say, that doesn't seem as important to me, right? Or that seems like it's a, a very highly technical detail of, of religion that they're not necessarily practicing. Or the idea of praying, right? Again, that's a spiritual activity which maybe um, a person is not necessarily like doing that but when it comes to like the moral law and it's like oh we have to be kind and generous and all that they're like no this is that's what i believe is right because i'm a christian right so again the the reformed jews or the liberal jews i have a similar attitude toward the old testament they look at the idea of you know the very strict rules of the old testament they say no this is like antiquated we don't we're gonna not live like that but the principles or the spirit behind it they're like okay yeah but we can apply it in a different way um, most Reformed Jews do not adhere to dietary restrictions or laws governing what should or should not be done on the Sabbath. And I'll give you an example like the Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews, they believe that you cannot even press a button on the Sabbath. So in some places, like in New York, when there's a where there's a lot of Jews, on the Sabbath, on Saturdays, they will set the elevators so that they go up and stop at every floor um, by itself. They'll program it that way. So if you're a Jewish person, you go in the elevator, you don't have to press what floor you're going to, you just get in there and eventually you'll get to the floor that you want. That is kind of a, an extreme example of someone who is an Orthodox Jew trying to live in a modern world and applying the strictness and literalness of what they consider God to be teaching in the Old Testament to modern life. Like as though pressing a button is, is work, right? And they, so they won't do it. This is why when Christ in, this, in the Gospels is doing things like healing the sick and the Jews would come to him and they would complain against him. It's like, how is it that you are, you are healing people on, you know, on the Sabbath? And Christ said, it is, good, it, is, it, is, it is right to do good on the Sabbath, right? Like, like, like they, have a, they took everything that God taught the people in the Old Testament to such a literal sense and they're trying to apply it literally, okay? But, but that's not the intention. Like, what was the intention of the Sabbath? The intention of the Sabbath is to dedicate a, a day for the worship of God so that you are not distracted by work, so you're not distracted by other, uh, other um, responsibilities, right, and other commitments, and you are, you're dedicating that day to God. And God made it very clear. From the very beginning, when the Sabbath was established, he said, what, you are receiving manna from heaven, and you are allowed to... Um, collect the manna that falls to the ground every day of the week except for the Sabbath. There will be no manna 
that falls from heaven. But on the day before, Friday, you will have double portion of manna, and you can store it and keep it with you so that you can have something to eat on Saturday without having to work. Why? The purpose, again, is so that the people are free to worship God. This was the reason why God gave the Sabbath. But there is a literal uh, understanding, right, that when you look at it from the literal sense, what do you consider work, right? Is pressing a button work? Some people say, yes, that's work, right? But that, that's, that, that goes against the, the spirit of the law. When St. Paul says that we should live by the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. The spirit of the law. What was the spirit of the law in the Old Testament? The spirit of the law was to facilitate a time for worship on a regular basis, right? It's, 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 not, it's not about that littleness. Yes. Yes. No, like they, they call themselves that. Yeah, like an Orthodox Jew will call themselves that we are Orthodox Jews. Yes. So even in the Old Testament, um, the, the, the by far the majority of the Jews were people who were born into it. They do have proselytes or who are people who are not Jewish that want to join the assembly. They allow them to join the assembly if they are circumcised and they participate in the law, but they're, they don't, they're not treated as, as the original ethnic community. Yeah. Now, I know that's how it was in the Old Testament. Today, if you say, like, okay, somebody wants to convert to Judaism, how, how does that work and how you're treated? I can't, I don't know specifically. So, yes, for, for, for the people of God, that's true. But God also allowed if somebody wanted to join, like someone who was a foreigner, who wanted to, like, join the community. They, God would say you can circumcise them, he can be circumcised, and he has to follow all of the laws, and he can be in the Old Testament, yes. Yeah. Yes, they believe in the whole Old Testament, but the Torah is like the, 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 the most important part that they focus on, which is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books, the same five books of, of, the, of the Old Testament. They're not in the Torah, but they accept them as part of the Hebrew Bible, but not, not, that's not the Torah. The Torah is the, is the main focus because that's where, all, where God gave all the laws. Okay. okay, what is, what are their views on God? The central religious belief of Judaism is that there is only one God. Monotheism was uncommon at the time Judaism was born. The fact of God's existence is accepted almost without question. So uh, one of the challenges that the Jews had in the Old Testament was the idea that they were monotheistic. Because every other religion, all the other surrounding nations, they all were polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. So they had a God for each individual thing. The idea that um, that that the Jews were monotheistic was was very new was was not was not common at all. It was very different, and one of the reasons this made this difficult is because oftentimes, let's say you had one group of people who who believed in certain deities, 
okay? And you had another group of people who believed in different deities. They had a different religion, but they was also polytheistic. When you wanted to intermingle with these two groups, one group can just essentially adopt the deities of the other group. Because when you believe that there are many, many, many gods, okay, we'll just add some more gods. Like, like it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a problem. Actually, between, let's say, the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, much later, right, much later, like in the New, in the New Testament, the Roman, Roman Empire, or, sorry, not New Testament, but m much later on than, than this period of time, we're talking about like Exodus and so on. Um, the Roman Empire had their version of gods, and the Greek Empire had their version of gods, and they gave them different names, but they were referring to the same thing. Like, for instance, Zeus in the Greek mythology is Jupiter in the Roman mythology, okay? So it was not difficult for one group of people to accept and adopt the deities of another one because it fundamentally didn't change anything about your faith. Yeah, you have a different name for the god of the sun than we do. Um, or you have a different mythology behind it. These things were not so rigid. Um, people said different stories. People had different mythologies. And so you could have people of different faiths, religions, that are both polytheistic um, intermingle together, and there wasn't a huge problem. Okay? But when you have um, a, a, a group with a religion that says there's only one God, only one, right? So now you are denying the existence of all of those other gods that the other people are preaching, right? This is why um, there has been so much persecution against the Jews in the Old Testament, right? Because, because people rejected the idea of monotheism. How could, how could there be only one God, right? So it became a problem for them, okay? And they were always under pressure to accept other gods and to worship idols. The other problem... It's not just that it was monotheistic, but it was spiritual, okay? Spiritual and not physical. All of these other nations, they would have physical idols. And these physical idols, they would worship them. And they said that these physical idols are a representation of their God. And they would worship this idol as God, okay? Whereas Christians were prohibited from doing this. God said, I am with you in spirit. I am not like inside a physical object, right? Made of wood or stone or silver or gold. And so it required them to have faith, right? Other nations who physically believed that this idol is their god, whenever they go to war, they would take their god of war with them. And this god of war is an idol. And so they would feel our god is with us. And whenever they're worried or, or, or afraid or, you know, they would just look at their god and say, that's our god. He is with us. The Jews, they didn't have a god to like, like an idol like that to bring with them into war. And so it required them to believe in God's presence spiritually, a faith without physically seeing something. And that's why the Jews tended to take with them the Ark of the Covenant, okay, which was not supposed, they weren't supposed to do that. Okay? But they wanted something tangible and physical to look at and say, oh, just like the other nations who bring with them their gods, we also are bringing something that is like reminding us of our God. So monotheistic and without any images right this is the difference between the first commandment and the second commandment the first commandment is saying you shall worship no other god okay so i am the only god monotheistic the second commandment is you shall make no images meaning do not make any image of god and to worship it as though it is god we are worshiping god in spirit because god is spirit 
not a physical object. Any physical objects that we use and worship in the church, we are not worshiping that object. We are not worshiping an icon. We're not worshiping a cross. We're not worshiping anything as though it is God. It is a reminder, right? It reminds us of God. It reminds us of the things that God has done. But we are not worshiping the physical object, okay? Which is a big difference compared to what uh, the other religions um, and people were doing. Okay, This is a good stopping point. Anyone have questions before we... Yes. So the problem that the, the Jews have now is that there are no more sacrifices being offered because the temple was destroyed. In the year 70 AD, the temple that they had, which was not the original temple because it had been already destroyed and they built it again, it was destroyed. And the temple was the only place that the priests could offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And that's why they had all these rituals around all these burnt sacrifices and burnt offerings that were offered in the temple. And they had the person of the priest who was the one to make the offering of the sacrifice. And all of these laws in the Old Testament that focus on the idea of offering sacrifice for sin, for forgiveness of sin. And when the temple was destroyed, there became no longer a way for them to offer sacrifice, right? And so the focus became more on the synagogue worship. You know, if you, if you, if you read in the Old Testament, there is no... The, you'll find the word synagogue because syna synagogues didn't exist. Okay, Synagogues became more of something like in the New Testament and beyond. And, at, at, and when the temple was destroyed, that became the only type of worship. So for the Jewish faith, what they do is they go to the synagogue and they pray. And maybe they listen to a sermon and they pray. Like that's their form of worship. But there is no offering of sacrifice because they don't have a temple to offer. This is why, and going back to the politics, okay, this is why there are so many Jews that want to rebuild the temple. Right now, the Temple Mount, the temple has a mosque built on top of it. Okay, So you, ha you hear stories about people that want to go and, and demolish the mosque, and then they want to rebuild the temple. And some people say that they've already like have a prefabricated parts for the temple so that when this day happens, they can quickly uh, you know, rebuild the temple. And some people say... And again, this is not, we don't necessarily have a stance on this. So some people say that one day before the end of the world, it will happen that they will rebuild the temple and they will offer sacrifice to God and expect that God is going to bring down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, kind of just like what happened with Elijah. Okay, but fire will not come. And then in that moment, they will realize that the reason God is not accepting the sacrifice is because Jesus Christ was the sacrifice and they will all convert to Christianity. Some people say this. Okay, but th the point is, is they want to rebuild the temple because it is only through the temple that they can offer sacrifice. That's a good question. Um, I, I, I've asked this question myself, and I'm not sure if there's a good answer. They just cannot do it. Yeah, they cannot do it. Yes. Well, there's nothing explicitly written that says that that's what's going to happen, right? It's an interpretation. You know, no, but there are a lot of people that's, that believe that. There are a lot of people that believe that. But I, I think it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fair to say that we are, we are certain that this is what's going to happen. 
It's one. It's an opinion. It's one thing that some people say. We don't know all the details. Like if you read the Book of Revelation, it's it's not it's not written so clearly to where we can identify all the details of all the events that are going to happen, right? So so what is going to happen? Who is going to believe? How is it going to happen? Is the temple going to be rebuilt? Is the building of the re- of the temple going to be associated with? Um, the end of the world, like another reason people say that there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple is because there's a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that essentially speaks about the rebuilding of the temple. The problem is, is that in the book of Ezekiel, the way that the temple, the dimensions and everything that is given about the rebuilding of the temple is not the same temple. It's different. So we consider that the prophecy in Ezekiel speaking about the rebuilding of the temple is speaking about the spiritual temple, not a physical building. Okay. Again, like different people have different opinions. Yeah. yeah. They're the ones who removed them. Like the the reason the Protestant Bible doesn't have the second canonical or deuterocanonical books is because the Jews removed those books and so when it was translated to English, it was translated without those books. Some of the books, it could be because um, if they was not written in Hebrew, so they considered Hebrew like the, their like holy language. So if you had a book that was not written in Hebrew, they consider, okay, this could not be um, a holy book. It could not be something that was coming from God. Or there could be other facts about them that they considered that they reject them. Um, I don't know for each individual book like what their reasoning was, but they're the ones who removed them because... Those books were written originally. Then they were translated into Greek. Then the originals were lost. The Greek translations that we have have all of those books, right, as part of the canon, as part of the Old Testament scripture. That's why we refer to them and say this is what was accepted. The Jewish generations that came afterward, they're the ones who said, no, we reject these specific books, and so we only accept the remaining ones, and then later on, those remaining ones were translated into English, which is what the typical Bibles that we have today are translated from. Yes. So there is a group of Jews called the Masoretes in the ninth and 10th centuries, and they wanted to reform and revive the Jewish scripture because the original Hebrew that was written was written in a way that the only way you could understand it is by having additional under knowledge of or, like an oral tradition of how to read it. For instance, it could it would be written with no vowels and no spaces between the words. That's how it was originally written. So in order for someone to read it and understand it, like you had to already know what it says. And so that knowledge of what it's saying was like passed down from generation to generation. And then at some point that tradition was lost. And so all there existed was fragments and existed was, you know, this very difficult to understand text. So in the 9th and 10th centuries AD, this group of Jews called the Masoretes, they reconstructed their understanding of the Old Testament. um, And that became known as the Masoretic text. And that Masoretic text, which was, we're talking about Old Testament now, that Masoretic text, which is in Hebrew, was then translated into English and other languages like New King James and what that we use was actually from the Masoretic text, right? So even though the Masoretic text is Hebrew, it is not the original. 
the Septuagint, which was the Greek that came before it, is actually more ancient and, and closer to the original than the Masoretic text. But when they came to translate into English, they translated from Masoretic and not from the Septuagint, which was older. So that's why, like, if you get, like, say, an Orthodox study Bible, the Old Testament there is an English translation of the Greek, the Septuagint Greek, um, that was translated a uh, couple hundred years before Christ. So that one is actually more accurate than the Masoretic text. And so that group, that Masoretes, um, they, were, they rejected those deuterocanonical books that are present in the Greek, but, but they rejected them. Well, they didn't have a good, they didn't have like a reliable scripture at all, right, up until that time. Like that's what the Masoretes, they worked to revive and reform the whole thing so that they would have reliable scripture. They didn't have something that they could point to and say, this is the Jewish canon, right, of scripture because it didn't exist in a form that could be understood. So that's why they, they made that effort. So as a part of the effort, they had to decide which books are we going to consider and whatnot, and they rejected some books. You know, we study this in the book of Exodus, and if you look at the Bible study there, you'll find the detail. I can't remember every detail, but we talked about it in, in the Bible study online. So if you, if you look it up, yeah, you'll see. Okay. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for every opportunity you give us to repent and to confess our sins and to approach you, O Lord, and to feel your mercy and compassion upon us. We thank you, O Lord, for the faith you have given us and for revealing yourself and your truth to us. We ask you, O God, to help us to be faithful with this truth, to believe it and to live it and to act on it, and to be, O Lord, a light to the world as you have called us to be. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, Hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.